you find yourself needing to learn more about D&D. What do you do? I cast Pod! Welcome to I Cast Pod, a D&D podcast about creating characters, taking chances, rolling dice, and having fun. I'm Mike, your DM and guide to all things Dungeon-esque and Dragony. I hope you're all well in this uncertain time and staying safe. I've been housebound for the last couple of weeks, and after finishing this podcast, we'll be getting stuck into my next session with my group online. In this episode, we're talking about elves, clerics, sailors, carrion crawlers, evil-hating rangers and their miniature giant space hamsters, and how to play safely during the COVID pandemic. Heard any good rumours lately? Due to COVID-19, there hasn't been any major news updates since last episode. So in that case, we are... Off to the races! Elf. It's often said that people want what they don't have, which might explain why I, with my large frame, round face and long beard, looking mostly like a dwarf apart from my height, love to play as a slender, graceful elf. Long-lived, lithe and dexterous, agile, swift, keen of sight and hearing, there's a lot to admire about the elves. They make superb hunters, ferocious opponents and impressive craftsmen. Their skills with metals is rivalled only by the dwarves. They are an innately magical race, although this has not always been a good thing. As discussed in the previous episode, the venture to raise the Isle of Evermeet caused the sundering. Elves love nature magic, artistry, music and poetry, and the good things in life. They live in places of ethereal beauty, a part of the land, living with it rather than just on it. Often their cities lacked walls, welcoming nature within so that no clear boundary is set between the city and the countryside or forest in which it resides. In English and Germanic folklore, elves were small mischievous people, associated with fairies, They meddled in human affairs occasionally, seemingly for the sport. Sometimes they would swap out human babies for elf ones, which would only come to light once the infant grew. Other legends have them sitting on people's chests as they slept, causing nightmares. The German word for nightmare is Alpdrücken, or elf pressure. See the show notes for the famous painting entitled The Nightmare by John Henry Fuseli. Other legends had them as helpful with healing magic, and yet others blamed elves for diseases and blights on livestock. In D&D, elves evolved from the Eladrin long before recorded history, arriving on a beer Toril before any other races. The green elves ruled over Toril in relative peace for centuries, until the Eladrin nation of Arivandar invaded the dark and green elf nation of Meeritar, beginning the Crown Wars which lasted for a total of 3,000 years. The Green Elves suffered many defeats and losses during the wars and were driven into the wilderness, beginning the elven kinship with nature and the forested parts of the world. During their exile, factions formed. Those who remained in isolation and lost the taste for building nations became the Wild Elves, nomadic wanderers. Of those, some migrated into the lands of the Eladrin and through interbreeding the Wood Elves were created as a hybrid culture. In total, there are nine sub-races of elves in D&D lore. Sun Elves 
sometimes called High Elves or Gold Elves, they are highly civilised with a natural affinity for magic. Moon Elves, also called Silver Elves, they were a nomadic people who often interacted with other races. Wood Elves, known as Copper Elves, these elves took to the forests as their homes. Drow, dark-skinned and generally evil, they occupy the vast caverns of the Underdark, they have their own magics and mostly eschew the surface world, aside from nighttime raids as the sunlight hurts their darkness-adapted eyes. Aquatic or sea elves, water-breathing elves found in the oceans of the world, particularly off the coasts of Faerun and Evermeet. Wild elves, reclusive and feral, these elves prefer a wild existence close to nature rather than the trappings of society. Averial a mostly extinct race of winged elves who were one of the first to settle in Faerun. They have feathered wings and can fly. Lithari, a rare race of lycanthropic elves who could transform into wolves. Unlike werewolves, they have no hybrid form, possibly due to their ability not stemming from a curse. They live primarily in wolf form in the deep wilds of the world. Star elves, also called mithril elves, this was an isolated sub-race that lived on the demi-plain of Sildiur, near the Feywild. Elves are known for impulsive behaviour and strong but swiftly passing passions, being easily moved to anger or laughter in equal measure, but quickly reverting to a calm demeanour shortly thereafter. Generally 5 to 6 feet in height, and 130 to 170 pounds in weight, elves may seem slight to your average human, and certainly to a dwarf but they can be as strong as either and can also move swiftly over even rough terrain. They also possess a preternatural sense of their surroundings, as well as unmatched accuracy in their strikes. Elves do not need to sleep, instead gaining the same benefit from four hours of meditation known as reverie as a human would get from eight hours of sleep. They are also still aware of their surroundings during reverie, making them very difficult to surprise or ambush. Elves usually take to adventuring out of wanderlust. With a lifespan of around 700 years, they can enjoy centuries of exploration and discovery. They dislike the pace of human society where everything seems rushed and unrefined to them and changes too much over decades, so they take to careers that let them set their own pace. They also enjoy exercising their martial and or magical prowess and growing their abilities, which adventuring allows them to pursue. Elves can appear as haughty or standoffish to other races, but due to their long lives they find attachments difficult, as it is very likely they will outlive their friends from other races. They also take the long view, so short-term conflicts and drama seem unworthy of their attention. They age at the same rate as humans, but are not considered adults until they reach a 100 years old. Elves, like other races in 5e, can be adapted to any class, but wood elves make for good rangers, although rogues could benefit greatly from the Mask of the Wild mechanic discussed shortly, and Sun Elves make good mages. Stat block. As an elf, you gain the following. Dexterity plus two. Your alignment is usually good or chaotic, apart from the drow who are generally evil. Your speed is 30 feet. You have dark vision up to 60 feet. You have a mechanic called Keen Senses, which gives you proficiency in perception. You have Fey Ancestry, which means you have advantage on saving throws against being charmed, and elves cannot be put to sleep by magical means. 
Languages are common and elvish. Subraces. High elf, you gain intelligence plus one. Weapon proficiencies are long and short swords and long and short bows. You gain one cantrip of choice from the wizard spell list with intelligence as your spell casting ability and one extra language of your choice. Wood elf, you gain wisdom plus one. Long and short swords and bows as before. Your speed increases to 35 feet and you gain the mask of the wild mechanic mentioned earlier where you can attempt to hide when lightly obscured by foliage heavy rain, falling snow, mist, and other natural phenomena. Drow, you gain Charisma plus one. Superior dark vision up to 120 feet. But you do get sunlight sensitivity, which means you have disadvantage on attack rolls and wisdom perception checks that rely on sight when you or your target are in direct sunlight. You so classy. Cleric. The cleric class is quite involved, spanning eight pages of the player's handbook, as opposed to a martial class like rogue or ranger, which take up five each. Clerics are seen as intermediaries of the gods, imbued with divine magic, unlike a regular priest or priestess. Clerics are often dismissed as just a support class, or worse, written off as only healers but the cleric is a warrior too, more akin to a battle mage than a nurse. Divine power is not granted haphazardly by the gods either. A cleric is someone who has been chosen specifically to fulfil a higher purpose and calling, which enables them to channel divine energy in order to manifest the miraculous. Clerics harness this energy via intuition of the will of the gods combined with their devotion, so although they may learn ritual and prayer, They cannot increase their divine power through study. Literally touched by the hand of God, clerics have been invested with some measure of their deity's power in order to become a vessel of the God's will on Faerun. Clerics combine healing spells and skills with inspiration, buffing party members in a similar way to bards. In addition, they can harm foes, invoke curses of plague and poison, inspire both awe and dread, and call down divine flames to engulf enemies. Many also wade into the fray, may swinging. The gods choose who they determine worthy, so not all clerics are former priests or acolytes. They might just as easily be wanderers, hermits or devout peasants. Some clerics may not only serve one god, but a pantheon, or even a cosmic force such as life or death, or a particular philosophy or concept such as love, peace or one of the nine alignments. This gives another huge swathe of scope for creating clerics. Through the use of domains, which are areas of life that their deity presides over, clerics have a lot of scope to be specced in a variety of ways. The player's handbook includes the domains of knowledge, life, light, nature, tempest, trickery and war. The Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide includes the Arcana domain, and Xanathar's Guide to Everything further expands the list with the domain of the Forge and Grave. The scope of domains is beyond the limit of the time we have available, but your choice of domain essentially sets the spec of your cleric. Nature allows you to spec a little like a druid, with the ability to speak to animals and spells like Barkskin, Grasping Vine, Windwall and Spike Growth. The War domain specs you more like a paladin, with Divine Favour and Shield of Faith. Crusader's Mantle, Spiritual Weapon and Flame Strike. 
Other domains give you access to more healing abilities, weather control spells, or illusory techniques like mirror image or polymorph. This makes the cleric one of the most adaptable classes available, something that makes me want to play one just for the utility alone. Clerics also have the ability to turn undead, making undead creatures try to flee from you as you hold out your holy symbol and speak a prayer as an action. Undead within 30 feet that can see or hear you must make a wisdom saving throw. Those that fail are turned for one minute or until they take damage, and during this time they can't willingly move within 30 feet of you or take reactions. For their action, they can only use dash or try to move to escape the effect. If there's nowhere to move, it may dodge. At 5th level, any undead creature that fails its saving throw on turn undead is instantly destroyed if its challenge rating is at or below a certain threshold, depending on your level. See page 59 of the player's handbook for the table. Clerics normally take to adventuring because of a directive from their god, which may be a call to exterminate evil or to seek out holy relics in the dark places of Faerun. Clerics are generally also deigned to protect the followers of their god, be it smiting invading orcs, banishing demons back to the nether realms, or brokering peace treaties between warring factions, tribes, or even nations. Most adventuring clerics keep a connection to nearby temples or orders of their faith as a duty, or at the behest of a temple's residence or high priest. Your first question as a player will be to name the god you serve. Appendix B of the player's handbook starting on page 293 offers names of gods along with their alignments and suggested domains. See the show notes for further reading on clerics from the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide and Xanathar's Guide to Everything too. Next you must decide whether the gods sought you out or discovered you through your deep devotion to them and whether the call to action was one you took up willingly or perhaps you were compelled against your own better judgement to seek out the enemies of your higher power. Most clerics will start their lives in a temple, seminary or other religious institution as a simple priest before realising that they have been blessed. They will then receive training and instruction from another cleric. To create a cleric, use wisdom for your primary stat and either strength or constitution as your secondary depending on what sort of cleric you wish to build. Stat block. Hit points at level 1. 8 plus your constitution modifier so it might be worth making your constitution your secondary stat. HP at later levels, 1d8 or 5, plus your constitution modifier per level. Hit dice is 1d8 per level. Your proficiencies are light, medium armour and shields. Also simple weapons. Tools, you get none. Sorry about that. Saving throws are wisdom and charisma. Skills, you can choose two from History, Insight, Medicine, Persuasion and Religion. Equipment, a mace or warhammer if proficient. Leather armour, scale mail or if proficient, chainmail. A light crossbow with 20 bolts or any simple weapon. A priest's pack or an explorer's pack. A shield and a holy symbol. Wisdom is your spellcasting ability and is also used for setting the DC save against one of your cleric spells. Your spell attack modifier is your wisdom modifier plus proficiency bonus and your spell save DC equals 8 plus your wisdom modifier plus your proficiency bonus. You can cast a cleric spell as a ritual if the spell has the ritual tag and you have the spell prepared. 
You can also use a holy symbol as your spellcasting focus for cleric spells, which is useful as you start with a holy symbol. Background check. Sailor. Ahoy and splice the mizzenmast. As a sailor, you should probably have a better knowledge of nautical terms than I do. You've weathered terrible storms, fought off hideous monsters from the depths, and slayed pirate and privateer alike. As a player, you get to decide what sort of ship you served on. Was it a merchant vessel? An exploratory frigate? A pirate ship? How widely travelled was it? Have you seen far distant shores and strange lands, or did you run the same trade routes year after year? What made you leave the land for the rolling and often turbulent life of a sailor? Were you fascinated by a life at sea, or desperate to leave something behind, or perhaps on the run? And then why did you leave that life? Was the ship sunk during a battle to settle on the sandy bottom of Davy Jones's locker, or is she still afloat, charting her way across the waves? What did you do on board? Were you a captain or a lowly deckhand? Were your days spent swabbing decks or in the galley? Or maybe in the crow's nest scouting the horizon for enemies, land or other vessels to raid? A life on the waves means you can be a rough sort, rarely holding your tongue, but the years of keeping things shipshape has made you dependable too. You can be relied upon to react quickly when the need arises and pull your weight in any given scenario. Sailors get the ship's passage feature, allowing you to secure free travel on a ship for you and your adventuring companions, although you will have to abide by the ship's schedule and route, which may not be as direct as you might like, and you will be expected to assist with duties as required during your journey. Alternatively, you can choose to be a former pirate, which offers the bad reputation variant feature. This means people are generally scared of you and will not report you to the authorities for minor offences such as refusing to pay for food at taverns or breaking down shop doors. Your skill proficiencies are athletics and perception. Your tools are navigator's tools and water vehicles. You start with a belaying pin, which is basically a club, 50 feet of silken rope, a lucky charm such as a rabbit's foot or a stone with a hole through the centre, or you can roll a trinket from the trinkets table in the player's handbook, a set of common clothes, and 10 gold pieces in a pouch, similar to the soldier and the urchin. Monster Menagerie Carrion Crawler Looking like a cross between a grub and a centipede, around 3 to 4 feet long, often a pale sickly yellow or green hue and accompanied by the foul scent of death, carrion crawlers are scavengers of putrefying flesh. Carrion crawlers use poison to paralyse their victims, wrapping them in their tentacles once incapacitated to be killed in the safety of a high ledge or isolated passageway and then left to ripen while the creature resumes its patrol of its territory to be consumed later. They avoid other hunters and scavengers by clinging to the walls or ceilings of the caves, sewers or dungeons they typically inhabit. Generally, they can be found wherever death is commonplace, so can be found near battlefields and cemeteries as well as caverns, tunnels, marshes and even forests, providing homes for these foul death eaters. Usually they hunt by following light sources, sometimes for hours on end, and probe the air with their tentacles searching for the scent of blood or decay. They are generally aggressive, 
attacking any creature that enters their territory or disturbs them while eating. They have been known to set up ambushes by waiting around blind corners or dropping from the ceiling, surprising hapless prey from above. To reproduce, they lay their eggs inside of meals or piles of waste. Once hatched, the young carrion crawlers eat their way out and then continue their feasting by turning on each other, by which process their numbers are thinned to the delight of all other creatures. Stat block. Carrion crawlers are classed as large, unaligned monstrosities. They have an AC of 13. They have 51 hit points, which is 6d10 plus 18. They have a speed of 30 feet and climb of 30 feet. They have a plus 3 to perception. They have a passive perception of 13. They have dark vision to 60 feet. And they have keen smell, which gives them advantage on perception, wisdom, checks that involve smell. They also have the feature Spider Climb, so they can climb on difficult surfaces such as ceilings without needing an ability check. Their actions, they can take a multi-attack, so they can attack with both tentacles and bite. The tentacles are a melee attack, which is plus 8 to hit with a 10 feet reach for one creature. On a hit, it's 4 or 1d4 plus 2 poison damage. The target must save on a DC 13 constitution, or be paralysed for one minute. They can save roll at the end of each turn if they want to end the, the poison early. The bite is a melee attack with a plus four to hit and a five foot reach for one target. On a hit, it's seven or 2d4 plus two piercing damage. Playing safe. In this uncertain time where social distancing and self-isolation are necessary, I thought instead of a Law Academy section, I would do a section on playing D&D online. There are two main ways of playing online which can overlap. The first is to set up a conference call, either video or just audio chat using software like Skype, Discord, FaceTime, Zoom, WebEx or similar. Anything that can handle multiple users should do okay but please be aware of security and privacy implications when using software. It's unlikely that you need end-to-end -end encryption for your game, but you might also not want people to be able to invite themselves to your chat without your approval, etc. Once your conference call is all set up, you can play with pen and paper like normal. If you do a Theatre of the Mind style game, you can probably just use audio, but video can be useful if you want to show off maps or props, etc. The second way is to use some form of dedicated software to play. There are lots to choose from, and some even incorporate video conferencing to a greater or lesser degree. Firstly, I want to mention DM Helper. This is pay-what-you-want software, and having spoken to both its founder and many members of the team in their Discord channel, I can say that this group is dedicated to making a great piece of software and are open to both suggestions and feedback. It runs on both Mac and Windows, Includes maps, including animated maps and map editors, initiative trackers, player, NPC and monster tokens, a full reference system and loads more. Check it out. The link is in the show notes. Secondly is Roll20. I've had a Roll20 account for a while now and have used it to both play and DM with. I've even used it to DM a local game with the group in the same room on iPads and me with a laptop as my DM screen. Roll20 is pretty active in the community, with a channel on Twitch showing live play shows such as Tomb of Annihilation and Descent into Avernus, 
as well as YouTube channel with things like Jace Bellerin Must Die. Roll20 is browser-based and is easily adapted to tablets as well as computers. Since the coronavirus outbreak, they've given away some free content, including the Master's Vault and an adventure from the new source material, The Explorer's Guide to Wildmount. And that's just to free users. Pro subscribers get even more goodies. Roll20 includes many sources from D&D, including full modules for the Lost Mine of Fandelver, the current starter kit, and the Dragon of Ice Spire Peak, the current essentials kit, which I'm actually running at the moment. And they include maps, tokens, and click-to-roll character sheets for a reasonable price. Currently, the Lost Mine of Fandelver is only $14.99. Roll20 also offers map editions like Fog of War and Dynamic Lighting. Link in the show notes. Thirdly is Fantasy Grounds. I've played a local game where the DM used Fantasy Grounds for maps and dice rolls and it worked well. It's available on Mac and PC as well as Steam and Linux and it supports cross-platform play. It features realistic 3D dice, automation for time saving, shared maps, random tables, library modules and built-in tokens. Link in the show notes. There are lots of other virtual tabletop software solutions available, such as Astral Tabletop or D20 Pro, but sadly I don't have time to cover them all. Check the show notes links for further info. Once you've picked your software and adventure, you can run it with everyone in their own homes. Easy. And for those of you that are into MMORPG video games, I've also included links to both D&D Online and Neverwinter. Neverwinter is actually available on consoles as well as computer. The Infobus. Minsk and Boo. Where goes the stench of evil, so goes the cleansing wind of Minsk and Boo. Minsk is a kind-hearted, dull-witted, bald, purple-tattooed and overly-muscled human ranger with a hatred of evil. His lust for upholding good and defeating evil, which can reach a kind of pseudo-religious fervour, along with his hamster-consulting proclivities, mean many people regard him as, at best, mildly insane. Boo, according to Minsk, is a miniature giant space hamster and is credited as the brains of the duo, apparently squeaking wisdom into Minsk's ears. It's quite difficult to say. Although to others in general, Boo shows no abilities or powers outside those of a normal hamster. There is a rumour that Minsk suffered a catastrophic head trauma just before he befriended Boo. Originally created for a pen and paper D&D game played by Cameron Topher, the associate producer and lead programmer on MDK2, in a game run by James Olin, the lead designer of Baldur's Gate, Minsk was originally created to be an unstable comic relief character and who eventually found his way into the Baldur's Gate games, amongst others. Originally from Rashomon in the Forgotten Realms, Minsk started life as a berserker trying to gain entrance to the Ice Dragon Berserker Lodge by undertaking his Dejemma, a rite of passage required for access. During this time, he made an oath to protect the witch, Dinahir. I'm assuming it's Dinahir, there's probably about eight ways to pronounce that, so I apologise if I've mangled it. It could be Dinahir, it could be Dinahair, it could be Dinahair, I don't know. Anyway, he made an oath to protect her as her bodyguard. Both were then ambushed by Knolls, which became his nominated favoured enemy when he became a ranger. Later, the favoured enemy would be changed to vampires, and then around the 1480s DR, it became simply evil. 
In the first Baldur's Gate game, the player is tasked with helping Minsk and Boo rescue Dinah here from the Knolls, once the player has been judged by Boo to Minsk's satisfaction. When Dinah here has been rescued, Minsk and Boo and Dinah here are available to join the party. Later, Minsk and Boo formed an adventuring party along with Dinah here, which included Imoen, Jahira, and Khalid. Minsk and Boo also appeared in Baldur's Gate 2 Shadows of Am. From the very beginning, where the player has been captured and imprisoned by the mage John Irenicus, who was trying to tap into the player's power for his own ends. Dinah here at this point has been killed, and Minsk offers his services as a means to avenge her. The death of Dinah here meant Minsk had failed in his Dejemma. Around 1409 DR, a statue of Minsk cupping Boo in his hands was erected in the commercial district of Baldur's Gate by the merchant Orbert Lewell which in actuality was the real Minsk and Boo, magically petrified. In the 1480s, the wild mage Delina accidentally struck the statue with a spell while trying to escape from gargoyles. The spell unpetrified the pair, and Minsk helped defeat the gargoyles, partly believing Delina to be Dinah here. They went on to join up with the thieves Cradle and Shandy to battle the Cult of the Dragon, eventually earning them the title The Heroes of Baldur's Gate. Minsk and Boo have also had run-ins with one of D&D's best-known villains, the vampire lord Strahd, which ended badly, the party barely escaping with their lives when Delina activated an amulet that transported the group to the spine of the world, whereupon they were attacked by ogres. With the aid of Sarvin, a gold dragonborn, they prevailed, but Minsk's spirit was broken. He felt that after their defeat by Strahd, they would have to defeat five times as much evil to regain their status as heroes of good. The party then defended the city of Fireshear against frost giants under the leadership of Lord Gripmort. The giant lord was holding the white dragon Lylanthe captive, and helped by a group of griffin riders, they managed to rout the giants after Cridal set Nylanthe free to turn on her captors, and the party recovered her eggs from Gripmort, who was holding them hostage. Minsk and Boo also appeared in the Baldur's Gate 2 expansion Throne of Baal, where it is revealed that he has finally gained access to the Ice Dragon Berserker Lodge as a result of his adventures and exploits with the player, and gone on to form his own adventuring company, the Justice Fist. They also appeared in the Beamdog-produced game The Siege of Dragonspear, set between Baldur's Gate 1 and 2, as well as the MMORPG Neverwinter in the Elemental Evil module. Whether Minsk and Boo will appear in Larian Studios' Baldur's Gate 3 remains to be seen, but being a fan favourite, it would be a missed opportunity if not. Go for the eyes, Boo! And that's it for today's episode. Thanks very much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can email me at icastpod at gmail.com, join the Discord server at well, check the show notes for the link. Or find us on Twitter or Instagram as at iCastPod. Quick shout out to my good friend Suze, who was the first to reply to last episode's question. Dwarf is one of only three words in the English language to begin with the letters DW. Can you name the others? The answer is dwindle and dwell, which Suze got right. Well done. I create all the content you see and hear on the show and social media, except for some of the sound effects which come from Sirenscape because great games require great sounds. Check the show notes for the link. If you'd like to help support the show, there are ways to do that. Firstly, subscribe to the show. Secondly, 
Leave us a review on iTunes if you're a user. Reviews there really help the show get heard by new fans. Until next time, friends, may Timora bless your endeavours.